You're listening to a Roddenberry Podcast. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by Tribble Toys. Visit TribbleToys.com and sign up for their newsletter to hear about exclusive monthly specials and discounts. Give a Tribble their very own forever home at TribbleToys.com. That's TribbleToys.com and sign up for free today. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 513, Waking Moments. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Norman Lau. And I'm John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, we peel back the layers, conscious and subconscious, in an episode of Star Trek to learn the morals, meanings, and messages contained therein. This week, Waking Moments, the one where the Voyager crew asks if it was all just a dream, or just aliens. Probably just aliens. I'll be right back with trivia as soon as Norman tells all of you how to reach us. Mission Log is the conversation about Star Trek. Drop us a line at missionlog at roddenberry.com and join us on X, formerly known as Twitter, and Facebook at Mission Log Pod. While you're at it, leave us a review and a rating at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And please remember your comments could be used on Mission Log or engage on the Roddenberry YouTube channel. And now, here's John Champion with this week's trivia. All right, stay awake with me for Trivia for Waking Moments. We have an episode written by Andre Bormanis. Now, we all know Andre's name as the science consultant for Star Trek at this time. He got a teleplay credit on Voyager for Fair Trade before getting the full credit on this one. But he also generously pointed out that the contributions of others on the staff, especially Ken Biller, really brought this one together. Incidentally, Andre says that he had the ability of lucid dreaming for a while, but then kind of lost it. I wonder if he ever figured it out again. We should get in touch. It was directed by Alexander Singer, and we've been pointing out Alexander Singer since he began on Star Trek way back on TNG with the episode Relics. You certainly recall that he was a fan going back to the TOS days, but never had the opportunity to direct on that series because he was too busy with Mission Impossible and other great shows of the era. This episode of Voyager marks Alexander's final professional directing credit. He passed away in 2020 at the age of 92. Let's meet our guest stars. Well, the number of guest stars is a little deceptive for this episode. We actually only have one. That would be Mark Coulson, who plays the primary sleeping-slash-dreaming alien. This appearance comes pretty early in Mark's on-screen career. Only a few years earlier, he made his debut in the movie Demolition Man. But Mark's background is much more extensive, with a very impressive string of credits and training from institutions such as the National Theatre Conservatory and the British American Drama Academy in Oxford. He has writing and directing credits to his name and was nominated for an Ovation Award in 2008 for his performance in Of Mice and Men. In recent years, he may have caught him on shows from Mad Men to Parks and Rec to Days of Our Lives. So far, this is Mark's only Trek credit. But let's also point out here that we have four uncredited background actors who play the other aliens we see at various points in the episode, and we usually don't name them here, so why not now? Those would be Mark Major, Adrian Tafoya, Stuart Coleman, and D.P. Fitzgerald, all of whom, except for D.P., have appeared multiple times on Star Trek, sometimes as Borg, sometimes as other aliens, sometimes as Starfleet background characters. Of course, in those shots where we see many multiple of this dreaming-slash-sleeping species, those four are duplicated with clever use of CG and matte painting techniques to make it look like there is an army of them. Welcome to the Delta Quadrant. The aliens who live here are just so dreamy. Prologue. 
It is a strange night on Voyager. Tuvok shows up for work without any clothes on. Tom Paris is on a dangerous shuttle mission. Captain Janeway sees dead people in the mess hall. And when Harry Kem starts making out with Seven of Nine, well, we all know something is not right. One by one, each of the crew members is startled to see an unknown alien, and then each of them wakes up, shaken by the nightmares they've just had. Act One. Tom overslept, missing his breakfast date with Bellana. She's peeved, but Tom is disheveled from his nightmare. They'll have to reschedule a date night in the holodeck sometime. When Tom makes his way to the mess hall, he knows he needs coffee, but even Neelix is distracted and pours a cup of cooking oil. Our morale officer was having nightmares, too. And, you know, so was everyone else. On the bridge, Janeway and Chakotay confirmed that they both had nightmares that included an alien with cranial ridges. It's more than a coincidence. When Janeway calls a meeting, they realize Harry Kim has still not reported for duty, which leads the captain and Tuvok to his quarters. There's Harry, still in bed, in a deep sleep, sweating and unable to be awakened. He's not the only one. In sickbay, the doctor reports that multiple of the crew are in a deep REM sleep, but not due to any disease or trauma or any other reason he can detect. They just are. Naturally, Janeway suspects the alien, and until she can find some answers, the doctor recommends a stimulant to keep everyone else awake. The crew assemble to use the 3D visual identograph, now pay attention, 007, to get a lock on who they're dealing with. An alien, cranial ridges, textured, yellow-brownish skin, pointy teeth, too. Nobody recognizes the computer rendering, not even Seven, with her vast Borg knowledge. With no leads to go by, Chakotay has a bold suggestion, lucid dreaming. He suggests that he can enter a dream state again on purpose and communicate with the alien. He'll give himself a visual cue, Earth's moon, and then tap himself on the wrist to wake himself up. Janeway agrees as long as Chakotay has medical supervision, so off he goes to sleep. And Chakotay sees himself now wandering a corridor while holding a spear and tracking a deer. The door to the mess hall opens, and when Chakotay follows, he sees Earth's moon through a window. Another door opens, revealing the deer, but it morphs into the mysterious alien who lunges at Chakotay. Act 2. Chakotay has the upper hand, and under duress, the alien explains his species occupy the dream world as their reality, and for centuries, others from the waking world have tried to destroy them. Chakotay promises Voyager will leave as long as they leave his crew alone and tell them where to exit this part of space. Otherwise, they'll come looking for the sleeping aliens. Fair enough. The alien explains that a six-planet system less than a parsec away marks the edge of their territory. Once Voyager passes, the crew will awaken and can go on their way. Chakotay awakens himself and tells Janeway what they have to do. With their course set and a brief acknowledgement of how extraordinary the situation is, Voyager's crew begins to reawaken, with Harry out for nearly a full day. The doctor asks Harry for some of the details of his nightmare, but in Walk 7 of 9, triggering Harry's discomfort about his dream in the first place, so he runs out of there to put on a uniform and get something to eat. In the mess hall, Harry stops by while Neelix and Bellana are in mid-conversation about their dreams. Harry is evasive about his experience, and then they all gang up on Tuvok to poke a little fun about what must haunt Vulcan nightmares. The frivolity is short-lived as an alien ship starts its attack on Voyager, quickly sapping the ship of power and weapons. Then the familiar-looking alien appears on the view screen. Glad to see the Voyager crew is up and about. Act 3. No defensive options remain for Voyager as two more of the alien attack ships arrive. Chakotay is angry that he was deceived, and Janeway doesn't want to go without a fight. But they're in no position to make demands, as an army of aliens instantly beam aboard Voyager with their weapons drawn on every member of the crew. Phasers are inoperative. Everyone on Voyager is outgunned and outmanned. Janeway and the bridge crew were marched into a cargo bay with the rest of the crew, 
And as they talk amongst themselves, a plan is hatched to gain access to a Jeffrey's tube. They'll need a diversion first, which leads Seven to spontaneously deck Harry Kim, starting a ruckus among everyone else. Tom heads for a Jeffries tube while Chakotay and Balana open up a power relay. But when they do, Chakotay is startled to see Earth's moon on one of the computer displays. He's still in the dream state. They're all in the dream state. When he taps his wrist three times again, he bolts upright in sickbay, shocked into wakefulness and surprising the doctor. All of the crew are now asleep. That started as soon as Chakotay began his lucid dream, and the doctor has been unsuccessful for nearly two days trying to revive them. In that time, he has compared brainwave patterns of the crew. They're all susceptible to a neurogenic field permeating all of the sleeping crew, and all the patterns reveal that they are experiencing the same dream. Act 4. Voyager's crew, manipulated by the aliens, are all in a communal dream, and Chakotay presumes that the aliens use this method to fight their enemies where they have the advantage. What he has to do is find where they're located. Perhaps that is their vulnerability, sleeping in the physical world. They're likely well hidden, but the neurogenic field, a big one, is probably the biggest clue where they are. The doctor follows Chakotay to the bridge, dutifully administering a stimulant to keep him awake, and shortly after, the computer detects a large neurogenic field about a light year away. Back in the dream state, the others are aware of Chakotay's breakthrough, that he realized he was still dreaming, and then vanished when he woke himself up. Everyone is convinced that they really are there, which leads to some confusion about how they're experiencing the same dream. Seven speaks up that the Borg have experience with a collective consciousness, so perhaps these aliens have manipulated a kind of collective unconsciousness. And just like a Caribbean queen, Balana pipes up that they're all sharing the same dream. What they need to do now is test the theory. Janeway, Tuvok, and Balana make their way to engineering where the warp core is powered down. While Tuvok secures weapons, Balana tries to get things back online, but that initiates a warp core breach. There's no response when she tries to eject the core, which sends these three running out of engineering. Except for Janeway. She's got a hunch and turns back when there are only seconds to spare. As the countdown concludes, there's a shutter in the corridor, but the door is open, and out walks Janeway. Act 5. So this isn't real. Otherwise, Janeway would have been vaporized. Now what? Janeway wakes herself up using Chakotay's trick and finds him on the bridge, followed shortly by the doctor who goes about reviving more of the crew. But as soon as Chakotay looks to the main viewer, he sees Earth's moon again, sparking the fear that he's still asleep. The doctor offers to help him with a sedative, and even over Chakotay's protest manages to administer it, thus waking Chakotay again out of his actual dream state since he dozed off. Janeway on the bridge was a dream, but the doctor was there just in time to stave off another sleeping spell. With one more shot of the stimulant and a hypospray, Chakotay beams down to the surface to find Voyager's alien captors. Meanwhile, in the dream state, Janeway gets a little more bold. She arms herself, ready to start shooting the aliens if she can't convince the rest of the crew about the reality of their situation. When she encounters the alien and his guards, their weapons fire passes right through Janeway and Balana. She's in control of the dream now and makes her way to the rest of the crew to tell them to stay in control as well. The alien tries to convince her, though, that their physical bodies will deteriorate if they aren't nourished. On the surface, Chakotay has found the device that generates the neurogenic field. It's protected by a force field, though, and he can't get through. Fatigue sets in, and the doctor orders Chakotay to take the last of his anemazine, but Chakotay has another idea. He'll give the last dose to one of the sleeping aliens, and what? perhaps strong-arm them into turning off the generator? That's the idea. Chakotay orders the doctor to the bridge to train a photon torpedo on his comm badge. If he doesn't hear back in five minutes, then open fire. When the stimulant is given, an alien wakes up, and simultaneously his dream state counterpart disappears from Voyager. 
Chakotay points his phaser at him and demands that he deactivate the generator. Terrified, the alien pauses, and it's enough time that Chakotay succumbs again to sleep, reappearing in the dream world on Voyager's cargo bay. The alien there thinks he is one until the reality of the situation reveals itself. Time is ticking, with less than two minutes to go until that photon torpedo is fired, taking out Chakotay, the generator, and every one of the sleeping aliens. Knowing what's at stake, the alien backs off. Later, the doctor revives the rest of the crew. And after all they've been through, insomnia seems to be their most pervasive problem. Chakotay and others find themselves in the mess hall, and Neelix is there to offer up some soothing tea. They're joined by Tuvok, and it looks like it's time to start an early breakfast service. The end. That's a fantastic uh, recap cue, and <laughs> not the cue that you think, because uh-huh. I thought I was living in a dream state uh, when I heard the dulcet tones of one uh, Mr. Desmond Llewellyn mm-hmm. being channeled by mm-hmm. Mr. John Champion. So well done there, sir. Every now and then. I, I had to look up that scene, and I, I'm not even going to tell everybody what movie that's from. I'm not even going to tell you. You have to go mm-hmm. find it yourself. But it, it is just a great moment of technology in a James Bond film. So mm-hmm. there you go. All right, on to today's show. Oh man, we're just we're, we're starting out, and even in a dream sequence, I'm so tired of making a joke out of Seven and Harry. I, I will say Garrett has a great scream, and I love that cut of the scream in Dream World and Real World. Like all of that mm-hmm. is really good, but oh man, can we give it a rest? I would follow up your comment with my own comment, but even I'm getting fatigued about my remarks on (laughs) Seven and Harry. So um, I'm going to pivot to something that I really do think was a truly lost opportunity in this sequence when Seven sidles up to Harry earlier on and asks him to go to Jeffrey's tube 37 or 47. It should have been 47. Yeah. I I, I, Seriously, when I saw it, I, I hit the back 10 seconds button to watch that again to make sure that I didn't mishear it. It was like, don't you mean 47? Yeah, you that's know? what I thought. So yeah. she said 37 alpha. I think it should have been 47 alpha <laughs> just because it would have helped right. You know the humor a little bit more. Of I course. Uh, I will say that whole sequence, the whole prologue uh, teaser segment, great editing because I, I thought the yeah. overlapping stories were done so nicely and they were just disorienting enough. I'm going to give away part of it now to say that one of the things I like about the episode overall is the pacing and the disorientation you feel while you're watching it. I thought all of that was handled very well, um, and especially in the teaser. I only have one nit to pick there, though, mm-hmm. because I do like how much it was like deftly edited so that you're always kind of, uh, you know, you're not uh, quite balanced in terms of like, is this real? Is this not real? Yeah. There's the scene when Tuvok, you know, he finally makes it to the bridge and you kind of get like what's happening to him. And all of a sudden, the entire bridge crew is there, including Tom. The scene before that, though, was Tom on a shuttlecraft, you know, in peril. Right. You know, about, right. Yep, about to crash. So as soon as you see one scene reconcile and the other scene follow up, you're like, oh, something else is going on here. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wonder yeah. if they uh, – I mean, obviously, everything is purposeful. But if they uh, – did they talk about that? Are we tipping our hand too fast here or not? Right. But, yeah, I, I think there was another way to do that where you could have – kept the audience off guard about that. But yeah, that that definitely yeah. gives it away. You know me. I love noticing new couture mm-hmm. on the show. Yep. And I love Balana's new smock. Yes. You know, and I think most, if not all of the veterans of Voyager know that it's because it helps hide her developing pregnancy as she's on the show. Yeah. Roxanne's but- pregnancy. Roxanne's right. yeah, pregnancy, yeah, yeah. not Bolana's pregnancy. Yeah. Roxanne's real life pregnancy. <laughs> right. Um, yes. As you may have noticed, she was hidden behind a lot of chairs and counters and uh-huh. obscured, you know. But I do love the pocket protector, yes. most especially that's yes. built in. I love seeing the tools so of her trade. Right? You know? Why have yeah. we not gotten that before? I love that detail. It's like O'Brien with his like rolled up uh, you know, uniform sleeves. It's yes. just every engineer has their kind of like their signature i think this is hers yeah 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 
Did you notice that Tom had his cup of not oil anymore, but hot coffee? <laughs> right. When he walks onto the bridge at the beginning, do we really see anyone have a mug of coffee on the bridge at all? I don't think we do, but honestly, I think we should more often. It just seems like a natural thing that you do at work. So I would like to see more of that. By the way, speaking of oil, and I I didn't write this down in my notes, but it reminded me of a story of my uncle when uh, my late uncle Jack, who was maybe, I don't know, four or five years old, saw bottles of Wesson oil on the counter, thought it was beer, and picked one up and drank it. Oh, gosh. Uh, now, why a four- or five-year-old would reach for a beer anyway, that, that like that's the first layer to pick apart there. But then mm-hmm. it was oil. So, yeah, yeah. as soon as we saw that reveal, I thought of him. Um, uh, it was a funny bit, I thought, with Tuvok's discomfort over his own nightmare when, when he and Jane were having that conversation. And I thought one of the things that was done well here is choosing nightmares that were character-specific. Because they could have gone anywhere with it. And I thought that was a, a good one for Tuvok. Uh, other people may disagree, but uh, I thought that was kind of clever. So Harry having a romantic secluded interlude with Seven? His nightmare. nightmare. Okay. Most of the characters were well chosen for their nightmares. <laughs> so no, I mean, I'm just, I'm... yeah. Considering what you know, the discussions that we've had so far between like, Harry and Seven, maybe that is maybe his it worst is nightmare. Uh, like, he wouldn't know how to handle that kind of oh my god affection. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I you know. uh, see. I don't see. know. I mean, that's it's it's not a criticism. Like I would lay you know at the at the feet of the, that whole relationship. But yeah, it is interesting that they're all nightmare sequences, technically including that one. Yeah. Yeah, I, it, look, it, that is a whole other show. <laughs> Maybe on After Dark, we'll discuss. Because, yeah. yes, I, I had very, uh, I, I won't even say mixed feelings. I had questions. I had, I, had, mm-hmm. I had the same kind of questions you're bringing up here. But mm-hmm. I think we could go way off the rails if we just pick that apart. And believe me, there is a lot to pick apart there. I brought it up in the recap, but I just want to say that I, I love the simplicity of the effect of taking the blurry image of the alien to full resolution on the computer yeah. <laughs> as they're using the 3D visual identigraph. Look, look it up, kids. Yeah, I love it so much. Uh-huh. It's so cool. Yeah. Uh, the alien did look a lot like the aliens we saw in scientific... Was it scientific theory or scientific method? Scientific method, yeah. Yeah, scientific yeah, yeah. Method. A little bit. There's only so much you can do at this stage, you know, in, in the kind of like the long toothness of Voyager's makeup department. Yeah. Well, and the alien, speaking of long tooth, I, I thought this alien makeup looked great in profile. And oh, right, right, right. Uh, you yeah, know, um, with that kind that of signature. Spike. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And the the crunched up, uh, spiky teeth, like all of that looked mm-hmm. great. But in profile, it looked really cool. Lucid dreams, uh, interesting idea. We'll come back to that. We'll uh, have a little discussion of that in our uh, next segment. Well, digital peyote can do that. You know, like in <laughs> digital peyote. That's still yeah. a great. Band that was name. one of our. That yes. was one of our band names. Yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, you know, there. Are, I've heard. You know, f- from great authority, from mm-hmm. someone sitting close to me. Yes, maybe my rabbits. <laughs> uh, that uh, you know, hallucinogenics like mushrooms or you know LSD yeah. or LDS. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> a little too much LDS. Um, yeah, I. They're they're kind of like invoked to have this kind of like hallucinogenic spiritual. Yeah waking dream effect. Yeah, from what I've been told, from second and third hand sources. Yes. Yeah. yeah, and Spock. Yeah, and, and, so. but of course, that is just an excuse to have one more moment of a Kuchimoya, y'all. So, you're welcome. And, mm-hmm. and in back-to-back episodes. Back-to-back! I know. Right? It, y'all? Yeah, a Kuchimoya intensifies. Right? <laughs> <laughs> in that moment. But, all right, but let, I, I need to get serious about something mm-hmm. here. Where was the rest of the medicine bundle? I, How are you supposed to do the vision quest with just... The digital peyote. Where's exactly. The the medicine bundle. Exactly. You need three articles to ground you through your vision quest. So come on, guys. Yeah. You know, let's, let's get it together. If you're going to do it back to back, you got to do it right. Yeah. <laughs> right. I will say, not a great moment of CG when the deer turns into the alien. But again, I, I will say the makeup on the alien is very impressive in those scenes. But, you know, yeah. You know, Neelix's um, produce was on 
display quite a bit in this episode. And I was just wondering if you it, looked any closer at it. Like there was some like shaved ears of corn, uh, yeah. you know, some okra, I think. I think there was okra. I always see ginger in there too. Yeah, oh, yeah. It, it was okay. And and I have to wonder now, is Neelix growing things that were in like a seed bank on Voyager from Earth? Because if I were leaving Earth, you'd want to bring a seed bank or at least the ability to maybe replicate some seeds and if it's me yeah replicate some okra let's let's get this going come on and then replicate some bread crumbs and then you know get some of that cooking oil you serve tom and make yourself some fried okra exactly exactly we'll get into this more as well but i I think it's a very interesting premise and i think we can mull this over a bit what does that mean from an evolutional point of view about a species that would evolve to exist in their own dream state like that is advantageous for them to be there because clearly it's actually not in practice, but they had to get to that point anyway. So is that an imposed thing or is it an evolutionary advantage that they have? I thought just as a thing to mull over making aliens on Star Trek very different from each other, this was maybe the height of being very different. Yeah, I was hoping that they were going to enter some type of mastery or like the the quantum state of uh, mm. being everywhere at the same time and nowhere, just like Tom was in Threshold. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, again, to make these aliens unique, our understanding of, of quantum singularity theory is going to be completely different than another species who probably has, say, mastery over in the dream realm. Yeah. That would have been neat. I yes. That would have been pretty special. Very, very cool. And then, of course, we have to reintroduce Harry's discomfort uh, pass. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> but I was amused. I was amused by uh, Neelix uh, having the nightmare that he was boiled alive in his perfectly seasoned Leola Root stew. I thought that was a nice fit. Yeah. yeah. I also liked uh, a little bit of that shade that, that Neelix threw Tuvok about a nightmare for a Vulcan would be on an alien where the only communication was laughter. I thought that was funny. Yes. I also thought that that was more Ethan than Neelix. Yes. Coming through. Yes. Yeah. Very much yeah. so. Um, and look, from what we've seen of Vulcan psychology, I mean, not that long ago, we saw Vulcans have some serious stuff kicking around in their brains. So mm-hmm. I would be terrified of a Vulcan nightmare. I do want to know what is defensive measure Omega because Janeway calls for that uh, when the they're under attack, when all those uh, aliens have beamed aboard. Is it just like fight with sticks or is it run away or is it something in between? We really don't know and they don't have any opportunity to, uh, to actually implement it. And I got to say, Seven just choosing to beat up Harry out of nowhere was very funny. <laughs> Whether it's in the dream state or not, I, I just thought that, like, like, look, and, and I'm not tying this to their relationship or lack thereof because it is not a relationship, folks. It's just her split-second decision that could have been anybody and just going with it. Hilarious. So he's literally turned into the whipping post of his own in-universe joke. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. 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 Pass. I, look, I, I, no, look it, it, it is insulting to Harry. It, it is problematic because of the way these two are written. I think if it's just Seven making this decision w- without any hesitation at all, it literally could have been anybody. But I, I, I guess Harry's close by. Yeah, yeah. Moon overlay on the computer terminal. Very nice touch. I like that reveal. Really good way to get back into that part of the story. This was right up there for me with kind of like the multiple dream exit sequence in American Werewolf in London. Ooh, so yeah, if you know that yeah, movie yeah, really yeah. well, there are those scenes where that kind of, you know, the suspension and disbelief and release and then back to the, you know, that pattern happens over and again in a very intense sequence. And I was like, okay, yeah, all right. Yeah. I like the way they handle this. Yeah. Yeah. Did you uh, did you do what I do in freeze frame in sick bay when the doctor is showing off the brainwave patterns? Because you yeah. do see the names of our known crew like Harry Kim and Janeway. You see those, but then we have names. Uh, well, we have Samantha Wildman on there, which is yep. very cool. But then you have names that we've never seen before: Blaine, Foster, and Swift. And I kept wondering if those were, if not crew members, probably friends of crew or friends of like Mike, Denise, Doug. People were. Working on those graphics. So, sure, yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I thought, again, just a really mind-bendy way to come into the next part of the story, which was 
easy for Chakotay, but really hard for the rest of the crew to to grasp. So I thought this was a cool way to let Chakotay out and carry on and then really mess with the rest of the crew. And I loved using Seven's experience with the collective's consciousness to extrapolate to a collective unconsciousness. It was a good way. Like I was just as a viewer trying to follow it, and I thought, you know what? That is the perfect bit of exposition that doesn't mm-hmm. overstay its welcome and stays in-universe. Well, it's very logical. She's kind of like channeling a Vulcan in that mm-hmm. way. So if yeah. there's something that is just the opposite, she's, you know, she's breaking it down in a very Holmesian kind of way. And I was thinking the exact same thing. And, and, and what's neat is how she was kind of blocked behind the, the crew the, when they were trying to figure out what was going on. So yeah. she was literally like the outsider yep. coming in and providing a very, very basic kind of logical approach to reversing the process. Yeah. Or looking at reversing the process. That was a cool moment. And then Janeway, once they figured it out, Janeway says, Neelix, Seven, Kim – do what you can do to distract the guards, which in my my mind, it just means Janeway wants to see Seven beat up Harry Kim again. I think that's yeah. what that direction is. <laughs> um, let, me, let me take you very quickly to a time code 3534. Janeway has gone back into engineering to wait for the warp core to explode. And uh, Tuvok and Balana are going out through that door into the corridor. Why does Balana run headlong into the wall? when they're exiting engineering. Tuvok doesn't. Tu- Tuvok just walks out. He's like, yeah, we've got five seconds to spare. So one, two, three, you know, the door is closing behind them. And she's just full on like, ta- she's she's like on an NFL line, just uh, just tackling that wall. I'm like, <laughs> you, you, you just both walked out of there. Hasn't exploded. You're fine. Right. You're fine. All right. Yeah. Got to admit, coming into the last act, the double fake out, very cool. I feel like you're only allowed to do that like maybe once in a show. But then if you dabble with a short one at the end just to like keep everybody on their toes again, then very well done. Really nice. Well, like you said mm-hmm. uh, earlier, the pacing on this episode is very good so mm-hmm. that they they spaced it far enough with the drama ramping up so that you weren't expecting a second fake out. Yes. Yeah. So I think that it worked really well. And, and you got to say, you know, it, uh, particularly going back to the teaser, uh, I mentioned how that was edited well, but all of this has to be on the page too, because it doesn't make mm-hmm. sense if it's not on the page. So hats off again to Andre for crafting this in a way that those moments made sense, but they were dramatically true as well. <laughs> really look, the doctor shouldn't have sent Chakotay away with just one more dose of the stimulant, the uh, anemazine, which just sounds like animation animation juice, right? If Chakotay is going on an away mission, it's animation juice. That's what it is. Uh, but if he's beaming down, come on, doctor. Just, like, go make one more dose. You can do that, okay? Um, great, great, great visual of the sleeping alien planet. I thought it was a very pulp sci-fi kind of image like what you'd see on a cover of amazing stories magazine in the 30s or 40s just like a weird idea you know and i i thought that it was a really nice kind of like uh visual bookend to what seven was saying about the board collective consciousness versus this alien's collective unconsciousness because essentially they're all laying on a slab or a ship and they're not plugged in but they're all connected to each other unconsciously yeah yeah so i thought that was very effective it's very nice and i thought it was such a great contrast uh because remember we had had our lead alien talk about how physically the crew of voyager were going to wither away and die if they weren't nourished cut to the alien on the planet who has woken up what a great contrast to see this alien now scared pale weak and vulnerable but as you assume that all of them on the planet are, and you, you almost feel sorry for the one that Chakotay is now threatening, you know, at the point of a phaser. Sleep state, that is the most vulnerable state. I mean, if you've walked, like if you've, um, you know, been in a dorm or if you've, you know, worked at a summer camp and mm. you just kind of like walk through bunks or yeah. bunk areas where everyone's asleep, it's kind of eerie. Yeah. You know, like you can sure. pretty much do anything to anybody yeah. there. Yeah. You know, especially Creepy. if you're on hallucinogenics, mushrooms, <laughs> or LDS. D- digital, I've, digital I've heard peyote. That. I've heard that. Yes. Digital peyote. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think that um, 
we missed an opportunity here for an understanding between Chakotay, Janeway, and the aliens. Because mm. there has been, uh, and I think fair criticism about where Janeway chooses how to ally herself and Voyager with a high-risk situation with aliens. Think about the the aliens from the, the telepathic aliens, for example, right? Yeah. There's something that maybe these aliens could have taught them if they were willing to take that risk and explore the universe and maybe negotiate with these aliens. But it's oh. more, let's, you know, let's arm ourselves and kick them off our ship and not even try and create an understanding between us. Interesting. Interesting idea. All right. And uh, finally, you love it. I love it, too civilian clothes that last shot in the mess hall Tuvok's pajamas uh they're still great i think we still need them for the next uh mission log get together so neelix can show up on the bridge dressed as neelix and that's okay but everyone's going to laugh at naked Tuvok. We'll get right back to Waking Moments after a word from this week's sponsor, Tribble Toys. So I'm going to put aside this little packet of Quadro Triticale just for my own safety. Please. Yes. Before I get into some of these talking points. So did you know out there, John, you probably know this since we're reading from the same thing. Yes. But did you know that in 1967, writer David Gerald introduced the world to Tribbles? In that seminal episode of the original series, The Trouble with Tribbles, and everyone, especially Uhura, <laughs> fell in yes. love with those furballs. Uh, everyone except for Klingons. Uh, True. But, yeah. but especially Uhura fell in love with those little Arn Darwin was not in love with no. those at all. No, nope. no, no. Now, fast forward in 2008, David co-founded Tribble Toys, the only Tribbles personally approved by David Gerald himself. You don't want to get yourself an unapproved Tribble. Come on. No. Yeah. That's, yeah. You're just asking for trouble. Right. <laughs> <laughs> ah. Since then, since then, Tribble Toys has placed over 125,000 Tribbles in forever homes. That, that's and just 125,000. That's just like one breed. <laughs> you right. Know? And that's, that's, you know, that's, that's yeah. one Tribble with an average litter of 10 over yeah. the course of uh-huh. X. You know, yeah. just yeah. the equation. Do the math. And then, of course, you know, as we saw in all of the wonderful tribbles that we've seen throughout the course of Star Trek's history, they come in a variety of shapes and sizes. Some of them cling to walls. Some of them end up in coffee mm-hmm. cups. Some yep. of them eat chicken sandwiches and coffee, some. And they make the perfect pets. You decide if you want to adopt yours today. Yes. Now, if you are a Voyager fan, and hello, you're listening to Mission Log as we cover Star Trek Voyager, you know that the Borg are perhaps the deadliest villains ever encountered by the Federation. But why would the Borg assimilate Tribbles? Why? Why? Well, it's because they can, of course. Look, remember, after Captain Sisko's incursion into the 23rd century, Tribbles were reintroduced to the Alpha Quadrant. And during the subsequent Borg attack on the Federation, perhaps, just perhaps, some of them were assimilated by the collective. And now you can adopt your very own Tribble of Borg batteries included, designed by Roger Sides, and he is one of the builders of the original Borg cube for the next generation. Each one is sound and touch activated and makes two distinct sounds. Borg Tribbles, you hear what I'm saying, Norman? Borg Tribbles, they exist and they exist at Tribble Toys. I am picking up what you're putting down, John. (laughs) And just remember, folks, the Kazon were not assimilated by the Borg, but the Tribbles were. Yes. You do the math. That that tells you something right there. Yeah. (laughs) So visit TribbleToys.com and adopt a Borg Tribble or one of the 20 other breeds of Tribbles. Don't forget to sign up for their newsletter for exclusive monthly specials and discounts at TribbleToys.com. That's TribbleToys.com. Mm 
Norm, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't have a deep insight into uh, this first point, uh, but I just wanted to share with you and our listening audience that I think the showing up for work naked dream is probably pervasive throughout all cultures. Uh, John, may I, I uh, interrupt you for one second here? Yes. Yeah, go ahead. Would you mind putting some clothes on, please? <laughs> Wait, am I dreaming? <laughs> I think it speaks to something very real, something about being exposed, unprepared. Like they always call it the actor's dream, which is, and I've had this before, absolutely mm-hmm. for sure. I've had the dream where you show up, you're backstage, you're ready to go on, and you don't know any of the words. You don't even know the show you're in, but you uh, know you're supposed to go on, right? Mm-hmm. Have you had that before? Yeah, I've had that many a time. There's a similar version of that where, you know, decades after being in high school, uh, I have the dream where I forget my uh, my locker combination. And, you know, that that just that that will wake me up in a cold sweat. And I'm like, I haven't been there in decades, (laughs) but yet yet I'm still worried about that. So. Years ago, I shot our uh, senior class short film in high school, and one of the scenes uh, was with my friend Nathan waking up, getting ready, driving to school, walking down the hallways, and then sitting in a desk in one of the classrooms in the buff. But this, oh. we all set it to uh, Muddy Waters' song, I'm a Man. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> I think, I, look, as a creator, as a writer, director, uh, uh, cinematographer, and editor, I think that is probably some of my finest work. And I desperately need to find that VHS tape and share it probably with nobody except for Nathan. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, but that, that's, uh, that just spoke to me. It spoke to me. I thought it was so cool. You know how there are what like three or four archetypes for a story, and then you kind of like have the, the the splinters of like those different permutations of the story. Like you have the quest story, sure. You know you yeah. have, um, you know there there are like three or four archetypes, and that's kind of like dreams. When you talk to people about dreams, it's usually like one of two or three things: you're either falling forever, mm-hmm. you know, or drowning, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, or you can't like escape some kind of like quicksand or water or something like that. And being either late for something for like a school test or some kind of exam. Yeah. Or being naked in yeah. front of, you know, the public or especially people that, you know, usually work sometimes school. And it changes, I think, based on your life experience. But all of those things are that's some deep seated traumatic stress that's resonating in your brain somewhere that's unlocked in the subconscious. But I found it interesting that. Most of the time, when you're in a social situation talking about this with people, one of those archetypes usually comes up. Yeah. You yeah. Know? And it goes kind of into the whole collective dreaming with the aliens because I, I like that they're talking about everyone dreaming but the same dream. But in this case, though, even though you may not know these people we're talking about, we're all dreaming that same archetypal dream. Yes. Very true. Very true. Hey, uh, have you ever had experience with lucid dreaming? I'm not sure. You might have to define this and go into it a little bit more in depth for me. Okay, well, then I will define it Um, (laughs) because it's very interesting. I personally have not. I've never been able to do it. Um, And actually, I'm somebody who does not remember his dreams often at all. Uh, just like every now and then, maybe once or twice a year, I'll have a weird one that I kind of remember and then it just sort of goes away. I know that there are people who wake up every morning and remember their dreams or at least their most recent dream from when mm-hmm. they woke up. But lucid dreaming, it is a a known phenomenon that stretches back thousands of years. I mean, the, even ancient doctors and ancient humans kind of recorded this and it really started to get codified much later and like the 19th century it really started to kind of take shape and uh, uh and uh, merit more serious study and uh th- there's a sort of an interesting list of what makes something a lucid dream and I, I I won't read the earliest version of it that I think was from yeah like late nineteenth early twentieth century but there is a a later version this is all from you people can find this on Wikipedia uh, a nineteen ninety two study which tried to boil down what makes something a lucid dream so here are the four points one the dreamer is aware that they are dreaming 
They are aware that actions will not carry over after waking. Physical laws need not apply in the dream. And the dreamer has a clear memory of the waking world. And I thought that was a uh, an interesting way to kind of like puts you in some parameters to know if you are actually lucid dreaming or not. And some people say that, OK, they only occur during REM sleep. But some scientists also say, well, they occur during REM sleep, but they only occur in this very short period where somebody is actually waking out of REM sleep. So Mm -hmm. some people say that it's not necessarily a deep sleep state, but it is more likely uh, an almost awake state. It's like a twilight stage. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, Twilight anesthesia. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So Mm -hmm. uh, uh, some interesting ideas there. And apparently upwards of half of the population, based on some different studies, has had at least one lucid dream. Okay, but more realistically, it's less than a quarter of the population who actually does this on a regular basis. So uh, that's still more than I thought it would be, because I I thought it would be a tiny, tiny narrow slice. Uh, But I guess this is only based on those people who were being studied for that ability. There might be people who are doing it and not even necessarily aware that they're doing it or that they should call it lucid dreaming. But there you go. That That's a uh, kind of a, a basic rundown on it. A very real thing. I don't know if I would want to necessarily <laughs> uh, be in control or aware of my dreams. If I don't remember them, maybe that's a good thing. I think I actually have had a lucid dream then based on your parameters mm. of what lucid dreaming is. Yeah. And the interesting thing about that is it's the same dream or the same archetype of the dream but in different places that I've lived. And it all happens in the mm. bedroom. Now, relax, folks. <laughs> it's a family show, gang. <laughs> yeah. But what usually happens is that I know that I close my bedroom door. It's just something that I do. You know, mm-hmm. when you're a kid, you don't want your parents to like you know, mm-hmm. wake you up, things like that. Yeah. But then I always feel like I'm being like um, held down by intruders. Hmm. And I can see everything that's happening around me. They're, you know, they're masked, you know, they're dark, you know, you yeah. know, ski masks, you know, that kind of stuff. And they're holding me down. And then something violent is about to happen. And I snap out of sleep. Yeah. And the doors open. Wow. Every single time, whether it, it was me living in my parents' home back in yeah. Ohio or in a dorm room when I was in college and even here now in Florida, that happened. Carol said, you were having a nightmare. I'm like, I don't have nightmares. She's like, you were having a nightmare. And I didn't know whether or not to wake you up. And that was exactly what happened. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's... And I could go into more detail, but yeah. that's going to that's, that's gonna be reserved for all of you wonderful Patreon and Save Discord Save that for Discord, yeah. Because it, it gets a little graphic, again, in more in like the violent way than in you know, mm-hmm. a sexual way. Because there yeah. was nothing sexual about this dream. But then again, dream analysts will probably say, no, that's all sexual, Norm. But it's not. Sure, not to, right. You know, right, yeah. right. Yeah, interesting. Calling Dr. Freud. <laughs> so. <laughs> right. Uh, something that I brought up in the last segment that I, I want to touch on just a little bit because I want to pose this to you, but I also want to pose this to the rest of the audience is what else we don't know about these aliens. I, I really like this moment in the episode where Janeway and Chakotay acknowledge, well, that this is a fascinating thing. This is something completely foreign to us. Too bad we can't stick around. Um, of course, they're in the dream state when they're doing this, you know, mm-hmm. uh, but it is a fascinating idea. And in their reality in the in the physical reality of these aliens, as it is pointed out, that must be an incredibly vulnerable place to be. Think about it. They at some point in their evolution, this property emerges. This thing comes out where at least more than two of them can get together and share this dream state. And then it is preferable for them to be in that dream state than in their waking living state. Now, they have to be, they have to be in a waking state at some point because they have to eat. 
They have to, you know, take care of other biological functions. They have to reproduce, mm-hmm. unless that is also a problem that they have resolved by technology. Who knows? But being in this state, making themselves vulnerable the way they have, that has also made them very aggressive. Nobody passes through their space without them invading their dreams and trying to take them over, apparently, from mm-hmm. what we've learned here. And you got to wonder what would happen if the Borg dropped by. But who would these people be if they had allies? You know, who would they be if Voyager could stick around? As you pointed out, if Voyager could stick around a little longer and help them out or understand what they're all about. I don't want to spoil too much of other sci-fi franchises. We try not to jump ahead in our own timeline, and I don't want to spoil things too much uh, for people who haven't watched other things. But I thought of the Doctor Who storylines that have involved the Ood. Because mm-hmm. at first they were presented as this fearsome, mysterious, frightening-looking creature. But then you learn about their ultimate vulnerability. And then mm-hmm. that changes our whole perspective on how we approach them. And I thought that would have been another way to like continue the story with them. Of course, this is 45 minutes. We've got to get in, got to get out, solve the mystery, and move on to the next one. Uh, but I feel like there's a lot yet to be revealed about these sleeping aliens. Yeah, I, I think that it would be interesting. It was, you know, something that they're very protective about. So don't share that part, you know, that part of their either biology or technology or both. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't really know. So it would be interesting to see if Janeway tried to, like, you know, appeal to their to their you know better nature and say, like, look, we started off on the wrong foot. You know, we didn't mean to, like, encroach on your space. And you were only doing something defensively because yeah. that's what you that's this is the part of your evolution that has manifested itself in order for your survival. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was very interesting. And I think that um, just to pivot to another point, you know, I have criticized Voyager as being the show that could have these great potential things happen. And, you know, I think that some you know of the fans out there also have criticized it in the same way, where you see like an episode like this reach a certain potential, but there could be more. Yeah. And I right. really, really wanted to see like, them delve a little bit deeper into Chakotay's heritage of the rubber tree people because Chakotay invoking his tribalism, you know, the culture of his tribalist dream state or, you know, the, the vision quest, you know, uh, the ritual that's from the rubber tree people. Yep. And we know that the rubber tree people and tattoo were an alien species from the Delta Quadrant found on that moon that 45,000 years ago visited Earth and then curated a certain section of Native American or Native species or, you know, uh, first, you know, uh, I don't want to get the term wrong, but you know what I'm talking about, right? Like a panspermia. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they branched off because of the beliefs that they were taught by those aliens who posed as people of their species in order to teach them these rituals. Yeah. So what was actually something that was so far advanced from the Delta Quadrant that was taught to a primitive people is still survives in Chakotay based on myth, legend, folklore, and culture that he's actually tapping to it organically. And he could have actually made contact with other species that may be sharing this subconscious subspace network. So are you positing that there might be a physical connection between that species from Tattoo and this species from uh, Waking Moments? What I'm more positing is that in the Delta Quadrant, it would have been really interesting if somewhere along the line, these alien races tapped into like a hyperspace freeway Mm. that that exists on a different plane that again, it's more on the spiritual realm, mm-hmm. quote unquote. Yeah. But these aliens, they tap into it because of whatever happened with their biology or their technology again, or both. And then the rubber tree aliens did it by learning how to go on this vision quest using the digital peyote right. and all these different <laughs> rituals. Right. But it's tapping into that same hyperspace subspace thought stream. And then they'd be able to communicate together. <laughs> they would. They would. That, that, and communication changes everything. I don't know what John and Norman will think, but I think this is a real fake it until you make it until you wake it kind of story.
So if our uh, if our analysis hasn't put you to sleep yet, this is time <laughs> for you to wake up. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Why would we put you to sleep? Because oh. you know, usually we, we, we our, our witty banter and our humor and our analysis, as we always do, uh, when we come to the end of these episodes, we take a look, as we want to do with Mission Log episodes, at the morals, meanings, and messages at the very end. But first, but first, we're going to ask you this question. Everyone wake up for this. We're going to ask you this question. Does the episode hold up? Does it withstand the test of time? More importantly, does it withstand the test of dreaming? Ooh, all right. Well, uh, look, I, I feel like I did tip my hand a little bit earlier in the aspects of this episode that I really like. It, it just somehow hits all the right notes for me. It's not a light episode. There are dark ideas here. There's some kind of intense stuff going on, but it's fun. And it is a very high-concept episode, which I would certainly expect from Andre. It keeps you guessing. It allows you in the audience to get confused in this very enjoyable way and then kind of work through the mystery with them. That gives it good replay value as well. I very much appreciated going back and re-watching it several times for our purposes here because it, then you get clued in as like, oh, wait, we're in this level of the dream as opposed to this state. You know, that was a lot of fun for me. It's a script where our characters get to struggle in some new ways, which instead of just like fight the bad guy, they actually have to solve this bizarre psychological puzzle going on as well. And I mentioned before that it has these elements of very old school sci-fi pulp type stories, which I appreciated quite a bit. I think the imagery is very creative. I think Mark Coulson puts in a very good performance as the lead alien interloper. I, I think he can kind of get lost in the makeup, but again, it's one of those performances that watching it over and over again, I got more in tune with what he was doing, and I, and I thought he was great. Some of his reactions are just wonderful, even when he doesn't have dialogue, right? He has to perform a lot with his eyes. Yeah, yeah. Because the prosthetics are so heavy. Mm-hmm. He does a great job at that. And, uh, and and I think this is the right combination of, you know, writer, director, but also editor. Uh, like I said before, what's here has to be on the page first, but it really comes together nicely in the final edit because what could be kind of languid and dreamy is actually keeping you on your toes so I think it just works really well. We'll talk about whether there's a meaning or a moral or a message. But as far as just an enjoyable episode, it hit all the right marks for me. How about you, Norm? Yeah, I mean, I enjoyed this episode a lot, too. I thought it was fun. There were some interesting, like, heavier, higher concepts uh, that we'll probably talk about in the next segment. But mm. it was it was thought-provoking. Uh, it was entertaining. The The performances were great. Uh, I think that, again, the, we mentioned the pacing and the editing and all of that stuff led towards a very tight, tight, you know, um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> tight narrative yeah. and a production. I love the dream state scenario premise. Yeah. And I think that's something that um, sometimes we identify early in a narrative. Sometimes we identify it a little bit later. But we've seen it done to perfection, like in recent, like higher budget works like mm -hmm. The Matrix or Inception, you know, just to name a few of the more influential works that's that, you know, are, are built upon the, yeah. the dream state scenario. But I do think that we saw the idea of this done earlier and better in Voyager in season two's The Thaw, oh. when we had to deal with fear yeah. and a suspended animation dream state that was somewhat like a, a lucid dream because the characters in the thaw, when they were in the dream state, were fully aware, conscious, awake, and they can remember their surroundings. They can remember the events that led them throughout the course of that particular dream Yeah, because it was programmed that way to do so. I love that fear in that episode was the catalyst of more understanding, I think, with the crew, 
with their current situation than I'd say the alien here was with Janeway. I thought mm. that they handled the resolution of understanding in how to defeat fear mm-hmm. in a more recognizable way than, say, here. Because yeah. it was just, let's arm ourselves and kick them off the ship and be on our way. That, to me, didn't feel as Star Trek as I wanted it to be. But then again, you know, you can't, you can't hit everything you know, right. we can't hit every note all the time. Right. But that's what we talk about here. We talk about what works and what doesn't work for us. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I did mention earlier in observations that I think Andre, who, who, you know, whose work we love on the Orville, right? Yeah. I think he lost an opportunity to really tap into Chakotay's vision quest and give that part of his culture a lot more credibility than what we've been given by mm. Jamake Hightower. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I spoke about this, you know, in, in discussion, so I'm not going to get too far into it, but I just think that it would have been neat to prove that in some way the universe is interconnected hmm. in that way. Nice. In that, in that subspace, hyperspace, dream state, communication kind of way. Cool. But I would definitely recommend this one because I think it's fun. I think that there's a lot of Star Trek in it. I think it's just a, a very agreeable, enjoyable episode. So I said a moment ago that I I wasn't necessarily convinced that there are deep morals, meanings, messages, or there necessarily have to be in this episode. But I, I think that is perfectly all right, because what we do have here is an episode with a lot of high concept ideas and just some neat psychological stuff to pick through with our characters. I think there is a utility in examining what goes on in your subconscious in those twilight moments, because it raises these questions like, are those moments, are those visions and ideas, are those the real us? Is that the real you? Or or is that just so much noise as our brains try to grapple with the influx of information we get on a daily basis? You know, let, let that idea keep you up at night. And there's also something pretty cool to extrapolate from all of this. And that's the fact that our own reality is essentially a construct that our brains are adjusting all the time every day. And I don't mean just when we're asleep. Uh, Yes, we're only just so much gray matter trying to make what's happening around us in the physical world match up with the narratives that we're already carrying around about ourselves. So on that level, your dreams are just as real to your brain as is your experience of everyday life. That is Mm -hmm. neither a moral nor a meaning nor a message, (laughs) but it is the kind of idea that gets me excited about an episode like this. So, uh, Norman, how about you? What did you find here? Well, I wasn't sure, you know, because sometimes um, in some Star Trek episodes, we really don't see it crystallized until sometimes like the last Mm -hmm. scene or like the last, you know, bit of dialogue. But there was a scene kind of like towards, you know, probably like I think it was in the fourth act. Mm -hmm. That kind of struck a nerve with me personally. And it it was a scene where the alien uh, invader, the only one that we met, mm-hmm. you know, he talks about disconnection. And the way that I took his his quote was, let me read the quote first, and then I'll tell you exactly why it affected me in such a way. Yeah. So the alien said, have you thought about what's happening to your bodies in the waking world? How long do you think they'll survive without nourishment, without physical activity, Your bodies are withering away as we speak, and you can't stop it. The reason why I found this so compelling is because I've recently been grappling with my use, or perhaps abuse, of time. Okay, time that I could be doing more productive pursuits in my life. Let me set the stage for you visually this way. For those of you who have seen the movie Wall-E, the very beginning of the movie, Mm -hmm. humanity itself was just basically being force-fed everything to the point where they needed to be force-fed everything. Their food was automated. Their entertainment was automated. Their movement, their chairs were all automated because they were all living this life of pure stimulation because of what happened, uh, why they had to leave Earth. So I'm always finding myself in front of some kind of screen nowadays, whether it's my iPhone, you know, or whether, uh, you know, that, that you have to feed that dopamine drip, mm-hmm. you know, of social media or staving off FOMO mm-hmm. because essentially we're all lab rats, you know, we're waiting for that Pavlovian response of the food pellet, right? 
or constantly swatching, you know, or switching apps on the Roku to find something to watch, even though I should just land on something and enjoy it, right? Yeah. Because you don't want to be part of that conversation that starts with, you haven't seen that yet? <laughs> right. You know, or just playing a lot of video games, which is one of my favorite things to do. Mm-hmm. These are the examples of what struck me so powerfully from what the alien said, because most of the time that either I or, and if I want, you know, I'm not just, you know, want to speak for you, John, or anyone out there, mm-hmm. but most of the time that we spend on screens, we're being bombarded by somebody else's ideas. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because if we were creating our own ideas, somebody else would be watching our content and we'd be bombarding them right. with our ideas. Right. And these are so strategized to manipulate the brain in such a specific way. It's hard to break away from that. There's a legitimate scientific study of how social media, social media advertising and the dopamine drip are designated to keep you on the, um, on the hamster wheel for as long as possible. Yeah. But what's that doing to your mind, right? You know, what's it doing to your mind and certainly what's it doing to your body if you're just spending all this time looking at a screen. So you're looking at how do I balance this in your mental health, my mental health, but like Jacote, I'm trying to find more opportunities to tap my hand three times hmm. and wake up from this self-induced technological slumber. And yeah, don't get me wrong. For the last 15 years, it's been fun. It's been engaging. It's been entertaining. And it has given the best dopamine overdoses sometimes. But that causes the addiction. And it's not real. And the hardest thing to do is what they were trying to do in Voyager. They're trying to break free of this lucid dream to return to their bodies so that they don't wither away. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. If you'd like to support us directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog for early access to shows and the Mission Log Discord. Our website is missionlogpodcast.com. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, message in a bottle. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers, Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, Tom Kozak, Julie Miller, Mike Richards, Mike Schaubel, Paul Shadwell, and David Takechi. I wonder if Tom Paris ever has a nightmare that he was actually Nick Lacarno all along. transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.